This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. The refined world of classical music is not usually linked to addiction, but a documentary that's airing in England this week opens the door to a little-known side of the business. Addicts Symphony takes 10 classical musicians whose lives have all been plagued by addiction and prepares them for a special performance with members of the London Symphony Orchestra. The project's mastermind is composer and filmmaker James McConnell, a recovered alcoholic who believes in the therapeutic power of music. He joins us on the phone from London. Music was a big part of your recovery from alcoholism. What gave you the idea of putting together an orchestra of people who faced similar problems? Well, it's funny. I was talking to my son, Freddie, who very sadly died of uh, heroin overdose about three years ago. And about a year before he died, uh, well, the year leading up to when he died, we spent a lot of time chatting in the kitchen. And one of the thoughts we spoke about was how music might be able to play a part in, in, in the recovery of addicts, whether they be drug addicts or alcoholics or any kind of addiction, really. And we spent a lot of time talking about this. And when Freddie died, fairly shortly after his death, I was approached by a, a documentary company who asked me whether I'd be interested in doing something about teenage drug addiction uh, in a film. And I then thought back to the times when Freddie and I had spoken, and it occurred to me that it might be um, not only very interesting to explore the idea, but also to show that addiction is not confined to the rock world, where it seems to be almost a prerequisite to be an alcoholic or a drug addict in order to become famous as a rock star. And in the, the slightly more um, refined world of, of uh, classical music, you know, it's a genuine problem because the pressure to perform, especially in such exacting circumstances, means that I think quite a few musicians do use either a, a pill or a drink just to steady their nerves and keep calm. Unfortunately, what happens is that the, the cure then becomes the curse. And I think, obviously, because it's such a competitive world in, in the classical world, no one is, is likely to confess or own up to it because they're frightened of losing their jobs, and understandably so. But in terms of why music might be a, a tool for recovery, it will only be a tool for recovery assuming that the addict has actually admitted complete defeat and is prepared to accept help. But the fundamental thing about addiction, of course, for me anyway, from my experience, is that self-esteem lies at its base. And the reason that addicts use is because probably from a very early age, they felt uncomfortable in their own skins. And so they're usually looking for something to medicate that feeling. So this film focused on people whose addiction to drugs or alcohol were brought on by the stress of musical performance. How did you track down 10 people who were open to overcoming their demons, their musical demons, and willing to talk about it? It wasn't easy, but I think if people are honest enough to admit they have a problem, in a way that there's a kind of altruistic desire to help other people who might be in the same problems, but I think a lot of them were interested in helping others as well as themselves. You know, there's definitely an altruistic feel behind it. What did the participants, the subjects of the movie, know about this project coming in? What was the premise? We have a very strong duty of care, so we absolutely told them everything beforehand. We, we kept up that duty of care all the way through and beyond. We told them exactly what it was going about. You know, we told the absolute truth. We were completely honest and open up front. We told them what they could expect, how it was going to work. So none of them came aboard with their eyes closed. They knew precisely what they were getting into. 
And so the only thing they didn't know until the first day was the fact they were going to be giving a concert with the London Symphony Orchestra. That was a surprise. I chucked at them, and actually they all, they all took it on board very quickly, and it was a very good thing to aim for. How about the therapy sessions and filming the, ther- the group therapy sessions? That, again, is something... A lot of these people go to self-help groups anyway, so they're used to talking honestly in public with, with other alcoholics and other addicts. They were comfortable with it, I think. There may have been a bit of trepidation beforehand, but I think once the sessions got going, they almost forgot the cameras were there. Was there some kind of a model for this documentary, 12-step programs, or...? Sort of 12-step, but we didn't, actually, we didn't actually keep the 12 steps. We didn't put the 12 steps in there because not everybody was aboard a 12-step program anyway. We wanted to make it about the music particularly, and the therapy sessions were a way of discussing, really, how they felt about the session, how their lives were going in general, as a kind of little foil against what they were doing in the music town. So it was a very good process. There was no, but it was a real model. There wasn't really a 12-step model, no. It was just a model we, we sort of made up, and it worked. One violinist said that I think it was 20% of people will relapse. And in fact, 20%, two of the members of your Addict Symphony, did not make it through the filming. Very true. What happened, and did you expect to lose them? I think it was always a possibility. You know, I think it's also part of the process, and I think it does demonstrate quite how evil addiction can be. Even when you get into a process like this, even when you're supposedly in recovery, people do fall by the wayside. You know, it was horrible to lose them, but I think uh, I'm focusing on the 80% that did come through. Did you try hard to get them back, or did you just... As I said, the duty of care was paramount, and so we, we were very, very careful to try and find out what was causing their, their problems, finding out why they wanted to leave, and not persuading, but just gently trying to get them to you know, tell us what was going on the problems. And it was their decision in the end. We had to get their best interests at heart. How did the London Symphony get involved in this? You know, the awful thing is I can't actually remember how they got involved. I think it was, they have a very, very um, strong educational department. And they've been fantastic. It's, it's very good for their profile, obviously. But I think it was also an area they hadn't examined before and they hadn't been involved with before. And I think they, they took a lot, away, a, lot, a lot away from it. Is there a takeaway from this project for the classical music world? Can orchestras like this provide some kind of model to help with addiction? Well, I think the takeaway model is that addiction is not confined to any particular group. It is, you know, it tears its way through all strata of society. In the classical terms, still, which your question says addresses, is that, you know, perhaps the classical establishment needs to be more understanding and, and realize that, in fact, this does go on. And even though there is, of course, excellence in musical terms, it is not easy. And I just think people need to be a bit more aware of it. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. We've been speaking with James McConnell, a composer and filmmaker who was the moving force behind Addict Symphony, a documentary showing this week in the U.K. We'll now turn to one of the stars of the documentary, Addict Symphony. Rachel Lander is a London-based cellist who performs for TV, film, and theater productions, and her credits also include the Raven String Quartet and the London Chamber Orchestra. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Now, you have a very successful career going now, but you spent quite a while dependent on alcohol and prescription drugs. What made you want to relive all of that? for the Addict Symphony documentary? Oh, God, when you put it like that, it just sounds like an insane thing to do, actually. What did make me want to relive it? Um, 
my parents were orchestral musicians and I grew up in the kind of orchestral tradition and I was in um, the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain which was like a big deal when I was a kid and um, I used to play in a section of 18 cellos and we used to do the proms, the BBC proms in the Albert Hall every year and I had this kind of incredible orchestral career before I was sort of 18 really and then performance anxiety took over and when I was about 14 I had a panic attack on stage and it kind of intensified and peaked in my early 20s which is when I was studying and unfortunately I suffer from performance anxiety and alcoholism so I treated my performance anxiety with alcohol and prescription drugs so I sort of I had to sober up in order to look at these problems and in my sobriety, I've avoided orchestral work because I find it really scary still. And, you know, I make a living kind of in studios and doing and playing kind of rock bands and touring. But I have largely avoided playing symphony orchestra repertoire, even though I love it. And there's something about the formality of sitting in a quiet cello section with a silent audience and kind of conforming that still freaks me out after all this time. So that's why I thought that I could specifically look at that problem by taking part in a documentary. James McConnell, the director, said he wanted to see a change in people and let them to put musical demons to rest. Did participation in the Attic Symphony do that for you? You know what? It, It sounds really cheesy, but it did. It really did. I had a lot of shame around the fact that it felt like a failure to me that I'd avoided something that was so sort of integral to my musical education it could have been tied up with the fact that my parents are orchestral musicians as well, even though they've never really put any pressure on me to do that. But being in recovery from alcoholism has kind of taught me that fear is sort of imagined stuff in my head. And I really, really wanted to kind of face up to it. And actually in the event, the fear is still quite bad when it comes to orchestral playing, it is, but I don't have the shame around it that I used to have. So it's definitely it's changed me definitely, just not in the way I expected. That's so interesting that you're not afraid to play alone as a studio musician or in a string quartet. And there's something about just that group thing or the formality that really gets to you? It's the formality. And I think also, this sounds really arbitrary, but it's actually the the length of time. It's like if someone said to me, you have to play Mahler's Eighth Symphony, (laughs) which is like, I don't know, it's about an hour and 14 minutes long with no interval. In the best orchestra in the world, you could do it with that, you know, whoever you wanted. I would refuse to do it because it would just be the idea of fitting. There's just something about it that makes me feel trapped and it just makes me kind of, my body tip over with adrenaline. And since I stopped drinking and using drugs, I have to actually process that adrenaline now and really feel it. And I don't know if I could sustain it for that long. In the movie, we actually see you getting undone by a much shorter piece than Mahler's Eighth. There was something about when you went to watch the rehearsal of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I, I tried. To, I played that when I was at music college. I was playing principal cello of the college orchestra because I really, really, I loved orchestral playing and I was kind of good at it. And I was leading the cello section and I had a panic attack whilst we were playing it. And the panic attack was so bad. I lost all the feeling in my hands. I got pins and needles in my hands and black spots kind of came before my eyes and I felt like I was going to faint or vomit. And I thought, I need to get off this stage before one of those two things happens. And I walked off the stage in the middle of this piece, even though it was already quite a short piece. It was just... And that was actually before I discovered that drugs and alcohol took that away. And actually, it was that evening was so humiliating that I thought, I'm never going to let this happen to me again. I'm so embarrassed and I'm just so scared. 
And the next day I had to do the same concert in a bigger venue and I just, and I drank for it. And of course I felt fine and none of the fear came. And I thought, okay, well, this is, thank God, I found, I found the way that I'm going to get through this. So that was sort of the beginning. And it was just random coincidence that when we went to see the LSO rehearsing, when we were filming, they were playing that piece and it just brought back a whole load of horrible memories for me. I can imagine. How widespread are the problems of drugs and alcohol in among classical musicians? Addiction doesn't discriminate between professions, first off. You know, anyone from any walk of life can be an addict, which a lot of people know. However, people don't imagine that the refined world of classical music, you know, under the surface, there is an element of fear and medicating that fear. And I would say performance anxiety is very common and medicating that performance anxiety, addictively or not, is pretty common as well. I unfortunately suffer from alcoholism and performance anxiety, so I, of course, was out of control very, very quickly. But I know other people who suffer from performance anxiety and they maybe take beta blockers or maybe they, they have a couple of drinks and that's, that it stops at that before performing. But I, it, for me, it was always worse than that. It was way less in control than that. So I think it's fairly common in artistic jobs where it's so closely linked with adrenaline and fear and difficult hours and no money and no security and all that. There are problems that people I don't think necessarily are aware of. Why do you think those problems are not addressed more openly? But I would say more so in the UK than in the States from friends of mine who were in recovery from the States where there's a big knowledge of kind of 12-step abstinence-based recovery in America. It's much, much less so here. So the stigma attached to addiction is bad, like in any profession. But there's something about, I think, the cutthroat nature of the classical music business here and anywhere, actually, it means that you don't really people don't advertise any weaknesses. It's not something that, is, that people care to admit, that they're frightened. And I definitely feel like in doing this documentary, I've taken quite a big professional risk because I've kind of come out there and said, actually, this terrified me. And I was so terrified that I used to drink vodka at breakfast time, you know, and I used to take Valium when I shouldn't and all that kind of stuff. And I, I've always been quite irritated by the fact that it, even though the pressures are on classical musicians these days is so prevalent and so obvious people don't really it's still a taboo subject amongst musicians did you know going into this into this that there were going to be sort of group therapy sessions with counselors there no i didn't know that <laughs> i really i didn't know that I'm and not, what did you think I of this not... <laughs> well i hated the idea of that if i'm completely honest like the idea i mean if we'd have had group therapy without the cameras there I think that would have been a different thing. And actually, we I just wanted to play the whole time. I didn't really want to sit around and talk about it afterwards. However, those sessions were quite vital because the 10 addicts that took part in the program, we were all at very different stages of recovery. Some people were in very, very early stages. Some people were in abstinence-based recovery. Others weren't, you know, so it was kind of interesting to, to see how everyone was doing throughout the process. What do you think can be done from the prevention side to keep musicians from turning to alcohol or drugs? I think that education in music colleges and kind of better pastoral care at that level would really help. I went to see college counsellors and things when I was studying because that's when I got really, really bad. I couldn't really get anyone to understand quite how bad it was. And um, I was told by my tutors to kind of, you know, just 
feel the music more and think about your phrasing and think about your technique while you're playing and trying to stretch yourself. But actually, I couldn't see the music because the anxiety was so bad and the panic was so bad. And I just felt like my, um, uh, you know, I was asking for help and it was falling on deaf ears, really. And I think that actually, if I'd known what was going on in my body, if I'd learned really, really been educated about the flight and f- or fight response, which is what happens, you know, when your adrenaline starts going on stage and how to manage that, I think that would have helped. So you don't know whether you're going to be able to now go forth and play with an orchestra? No, I don't know. And actually, I think I've stopped beating myself up about the fact that I haven't done that. And I'm trying to be grateful for the work that I do do, which is great work. And, you know, I'm very lucky I get to record on film scores. I was doing a Ron Howard movie last week and... You know, I spend a lot of time in studios with really fantastic musicians. And um, I don't know, I'm trying to embrace what I have got rather than the stuff that I find difficult. Rachel Lander is a London-based cellist and can be seen in the Channel 4 documentary Addict's Symphony. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.